Chapter Twelve of the History of Pendennis. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of Pendennis by William Makepeace Thackeray. Chapter Twelve, in which a shooting match is proposed. Early mention has been made in this history of Mr. Garbett's principal tragedian, a promising and athletic young actor, of jovial habits and irregular inclinations, between whom and Mr. Costigan there was a considerable intimacy. They were the chief ornaments of the convivial club held at the Magpie Hotel. They helped each other in various bill transactions in which they had been engaged, with the mutual loan of each other's valuable signatures. They were friends in fine, although Mr. Garbett seldom called at Costigan's house being disliked by Miss Fotheringay, of whom in her turn Mrs. Garbett's was considerably jealous. The truth is that Garbett's had paid his court to Miss Fotheringay and been refused by her, before he offered his hand to Mrs. G. Their history, however, forms no part of our present scheme. Suffice it, Mr. Garbett's was called in by Captain Costigan immediately after his daughter and Mr. Bowes had quitted the house, as a friend proper to be consulted at the actual juncture. He was a large man, with a loud voice and fierce aspect, who had the finest legs of the whole company, and could break a poker in mere sport across his stalwart arm. "'Run, Tommy,' said Mr. Costigan to the little messenger, "'and fetch Mr. Garbett's from his lodgings over the tripe-shop. "'You know, and tell him to send two glasses of whisky and water, hot from the grapes.' So Tommy went his way, and presently Mr. Garbett's and the whisky came." Captain Costigan did not disclose to him the whole of the previous events, of which the reader is in possession, but with the aid of the spirits and water he composed a letter of a threatening nature to Major Pendennis's address, in which he called upon that gentleman to offer no hindrance to the marriage projected between Mr. Arthur Pendennis and his daughter, Miss Fotheringay, and to fix an early day for its celebration, or in any other case to give him the satisfaction which was usual between gentlemen of honour. And should Major Pendennis be disinclined to this alternative, the captain hinted that he would force him to accept by the use of a horsewhip, which he should employ upon the Major's person. The precise terms of this letter we cannot give, for reasons which shall be specified presently. But it was, no doubt, couched in the captain's finest style, and sealed elaborately with the great silver seal of the Costigans, the only bit of the family plate which the captain possessed. Garbutz was dispatched then with this message and letter and bidding heaven bless him the general squeezed his ambassador's hand and saw him depart then he took down his venerable and murderous duelling pistols with, with flintlocks that had done the business of many a pretty fellow in dublin and having examined these and seen that they were in a satisfactory condition he brought from the drawer all pen's letters and poems which he kept there and which he always read before he permitted his emily to enjoy their perusal in a score of minutes, Garbutz came back with an anxious and crestfallen countenance. "'You've seen him? the captain said. "'Why, yes,' said Garbutz. "'And when is it for?' asked Costigan, trying the lock of one of the ancient pistols, and bringing it to a level with his eye, as he called that bloodshot orb. "'When is it for?' asked Mr. Garbutz. "'The meeting, my dear fellow.' "'You don't mean to say you mean mortal combat, captain,' Garbutz said aghast. "'What the devil else do I mean, Garbutz? "'I want to shoot that man that has traduced me honour, "'or myself drop a victim on the sod. "'Damned if I carry challenges.' "'Mr. Garbutz replied, "'I'm a family man, Captain, "'and will have nothing to do with pistols. "'Take back your letter.' 
and to the surprise and indignation of Captain Costigan, his emissary flung the letter down, with its great sprawling superscription and blotched seal. "'You don't mean to say you saw him and didn't give him the letter?' cried out the captain in a fury. "'I saw him, but I could not have speech with him, Captain,' said Mr. Garbets. "'And why the devil not?' asked the other. "'There was one there I cared not to meet, nor would you,' the tragedian answered in a sepulchral voice. "'The minium Tatham was there, Captain.' "'The cowardly scoundrel!' roared Costigan. "'He's frightened, and already going to swear the peace against me.' "'I'll have nothing to do with the fighting. "'Mark that,' the tragedian doggedly said. "'And I wish I'd not seen Tatham neither. "'Nor that bit of... "'Hold your tongue, Bob Akers.' "'It's my belief you're no better than a coward,' said Captain Costigan, "'quoting Sir Lucius O'Trigger, "'which character he had performed with credit both often on the stage.' and after some parley between the couple they separated in not very good humour. Their colloquy has been here condensed, as the reader knows the main point upon which it turned, but the latter will now see how it is impossible to give a correct account of the letter which the captain wrote to Major Pendennis, as it was never opened at all by that gentleman. When Miss Costigan came home from rehearsal, which she did in the company of the faithful Mr. Bowes, she found her father pacing up and down their apartment in a great state of agitation, and in the midst of a powerful odour of spirits and water, which, as it appeared, had not succeeded in pacifying his disordered mind. The Pendennis papers were on the table surrounding the empty goblets and now useless teaspoon which had served to hold and mix the captain's liquor and his friends. As Emily entered he seized her arm in his and cried, "'Prepare yourself, me child, me blessed child!' in a voice of agony and with eyes brimful of tears. "'You tipsy again, papa,' Miss Fotheringay said, pushing back her sire. "'You promised me you wouldn't take spirits before dinner. "'It's to forget me sorrows, me poor girl, that I've taken just a drop,' cried the bereaved father. "'It's to drown me care that I drain the bowl.' "'Your care takes a deal of drowning, Captain dear,' said Bose, mimicking his friend's accent. "'What has happened?' "'Has that soft-spoken gentleman in the wig been vexing you?' "'The oily miscreant! I'll have his blood!' roared Coss. Miss Milly, it must be premised, had fled to her room out of his embrace, and was taking off her bonnet and shawl there. "'I thought he meant mischief. He was so uncommon civil,' the other said. "'What has he come to say?' "'Oh, Bows, he's—he has overwhelmed me,' the captain said. "'There's a hellish conspiracy on foot against me, poor girl.' and it's me opinion that both them Pendennis's nephew and uncle is two infernal traitors and scoundrels who should be consumed off the face of the earth. What is it? What has happened? said Mr. Bowes, growing rather excited. Costigan then told him the major's statement that the young Pendennis had not two thousand, nor two hundred pounds a year, and expressed his fury that he should have permitted such an impostor to coax and wheedle his innocent girl, and that he should have nourished such a viper in his own personal bosom. "'I have shaken the reptile from me, however,' said Costigan, "'and as for his uncle, I'll have such a revenge on that old man "'as shall make him rue the day he ever insulted a Costigan.' "'What do you mean, General?' said Bose. "'I mean to have his life, Bose. "'His villainous, skulking life, my boy.' "'And he rapped upon the battered old pistol-case in an ominous and savage manner. "'Bose had often heard him appeal to that box of death "'with which he proposed to sacrifice his enemies.' but the captain did not tell him that he had actually written and sent a challenge to Major Pendennis, and Mr. Bowes therefore rather disregarded the pistols in the present instance. 
At this juncture Miss Fotheringay returned to the common sitting-room, from her private apartment, looking perfectly healthy, happy, and unconcerned, a striking and wholesome contrast to her father, who was in a delirious tremor of grief, anger, and other agitation. She brought in a pair of ex-white satin shoes with her, which she proposed to rub as clean as might be with bread-crumb, intending to go mad with them upon next Tuesday evening in Ophelia, in which character she was to reappear on that night. She looked at the papers on the table, stopped as if she was going to ask a question, but thought better of it, and, going to the cupboard, selected an eligible piece of bread, wherewith she might operate on the satin slippers, and afterwards, coming back to the table, seated herself there commodiously with the shoes, and then asked her father, in her honest Irish brogue, "'What have you got them letters and poetry and stuff of Mr. Arthur's out for, Pa? Sure ye don't want to be reading over that nonsense. Oh, Emily!' That boy whom I loved as the boy of me bosom is only a scoundrel and a deceiver, me poor girl. And he looked in the most tragical way at Bowes opposite, who in his turn gazed somewhat anxiously at Miss Costigan. He, Pooh, sure the poor lad's as simple as a schoolboy, she said. All them children write verses and nonsense. He's been acting the part of a viper to this fireside, and a traitor in this family, cried the captain. I tell ye he's no better than an impostor. What has the poor fellow done, papa? asked Emily. Done? He has deceived us in the most atrocious manner, Miss Emily's papa said. He has trifled with your affections, and outraged my own fine feelings. He has represented himself as a man of property, and it turns out that he is no better than a beggar. Haven't I often told ye he had two thousand a year? He's a pauper, I tell ye, Miss Costigan. A dependent upon the bounty of his mother, a good woman who may marry again, who's likely to live forever, and who has but five hundred a year. How dare he ask ye to marry into a family which has not the means of providing for ye? You've been grossly deceived and put upon, Milly, and it's my belief his old ruffian of an uncle in a wig is in the plot against us. That soft old gentleman? What has he been doing, papa? continued Emily, still imperturbable. Costigan informed Milly that when she was gone, Major Pendennis told him in his double-faced Paul-Mont polite manner that young Arthur had no fortune at all, that the Major had asked him, Costigan, to go to the lawyers, wherein he knew the scoundrels had a bill of mine, and I can't meet them, the captain parenthetically remarked, and see the lad's father's will, and finally that an infernal swindle had been practised upon him by the pair, and that he was resolved either on a marriage or on the blood of both of them. Milly looked very grave and thoughtful, rubbing the white satin shoes. "'Sure, if he's no money, there's no use marrying him, papa,' she said sententiously. "'Why did the villain say he was a man of property?' asked Costigan. "'The poor fellow always said he was poor,' answered the girl. "'Twas you would have it he was rich, papa, and made me agree to take him. "'He should have been explicit, and told us his income, Milly,' answered the father." A young fellow who rides a blood mare and makes presents of shawls and bracelets is an impostor if he has no money. And as for his uncle, bedad, I'll pull off his wig whenever I see him. Bose here shall take a message to him and tell him so. Either it's a marriage or he meets me in the field like a man, or I'll tweak him on the nose in front of his hotel, or in the gravel walks of Fair Oaks Park before all the county, bedad. Bedad, you may send somebody else with the message, said Bose, laughing. "'I'm a fiddler, not a fighting man, Captain.' "'Pooh, you've no spirit, sir,' roared the General. 
I'll be my own second, if no one will stand by and see me injured. And I'll take my case of pistols and shoot em in the coffee-room of the George. And so poor Arthur has no money, sighed out Miss Costigan, rather plaintively. Poor lad, he was a good lad, too. Wild and talking nonsense with his verses and poetry and that. But a brave, generous boy, and indeed I liked him. And he liked me, too, she added rather softly, and rubbing away at the shoe. Why don't you marry him if you like him so? Mr. Bow said rather savagely. He is not more than ten years younger than you are. His mother may relent, and you might go and live and have enough at Fair Oaks Park. Why not go and be a lady? I could go on with the fiddle, and the general live on his half-pay. Why don't you marry him? You know he likes you. There's others that like me as well, Bose, that has no money and that's old enough, Miss Millie said sententiously. Yes, dammit, said Bose with a bitter curse, that are old enough and poor enough and fools enough for anything. There's old fools and young fools too. You've often said so, you silly man, the imperious beauty said, with a conscious glance at the old gentleman. If Pendennis has not enough money to live upon, it's folly to talk about marrying him, and that's the long and short of it. And the boy, said Mr. Bowes, by Jove, you throw a man away like an old glove, Miss Costigan. I don't know what you mean, Bowes, said Miss Fotheringay, placidly, rubbing the second shoe. If he had had half of the two thousand a year that Papa gave him, or the half of that, I would marry him. But what is the good of taking on with a beggar? We're poor enough already. There's no use in my going to live with an old lady that's testy and cross, maybe and would grudge me every morsel of meat. Sure, it's near dinner-time, and Suki not laid the cloth yet. And then, added Miss Costigan quite simply, suppose there was a family. Why, Papa, we shouldn't be as well off as we are now. Deed, then, you would not, Milly dear, answered the father. And there's an end to all the fine talk about Mrs. Arthur Pendennis of Fair Oaks Park, the member of Parliament's lady, said Milly with a laugh. Pretty carriages and horses we should have to ride that you were always talking about, Papa. But it's always the same. If a man looked at me, you fancied he was going to marry me, and if he had a good coat, you fancied he was as rich as Croesus. As Croesus, said Mr. Bowes. Well, call him what you like. But it's a fact now that Papa has married me these eight years a score of times. Wasn't I to be my Lady Paul duty of Oyster Town Castle? Then there was the Navy Captain at Portsmouth, and the old surgeon at Norwich and the Methodist preacher here last year. And who knows how many more? Well, I bet a penny, with all your scheming, I shall die Millie Costigan at last. So poor little Arthur has no money. Stop and take dinner, Bose. We've a beautiful beef-steak pudding. I wonder whether she is on with Sir Debbie Oakes, thought Bose, whose eyes and thoughts were always watching her. The dodges of women beat all comprehension, and I am sure she wouldn't let that lad off so easily if she had not some other scheme on hand. It will have been perceived that Miss Fotheringay, though silent in general, and by no means brilliant as a conversationist, where poetry, literature, or the fine arts were concerned, could talk freely and with good sense too in her own family circle. She cannot justly be called a romantic person, nor were her literary acquirements great. She never opened a Shakespeare from the day she left the stage, nor indeed understood it during all the time she adorned the boards, but about a pudding, a piece of needlework, or her own domestic affairs, she was as good a judge as could be found, and not being misled by a strong imagination or a passionate temper, 
was better enabled to keep her judgment cool. When, over their dinner, Costigan tried to convince himself and the company that the Major's statement regarding Penn's finances was unworthy of credit, and a mere ruse upon the old hypocrite's part so as to induce them on their side to break off the match, Miss Millie would not for a moment admit the possibility of deceit on the side of the adversary, and pointed out clearly that it was her father who had deceived himself, and not poor little Penn who had tried to take them in. As for that poor lad, she said she pitied him with all her heart, and she ate an exceedingly good dinner, to the admiration of Mr. Bowes, who had a remarkable regard and contempt for this woman, during and after which repast the party devised upon the best means of bringing this love matter to a close. As for Costigan, his idea of tweaking the Major's nose vanished with his supply of after-dinner whisky and water, and he was submissive to his daughter and ready for any plan on which she might decide, in order to meet the crisis which she saw was at hand. The captain, who, as long as he had a notion that he was wronged, was eager to face and demolish both Penn and his uncle, perhaps shrank from the idea of meeting the former, and asked what the deuce they were to say to the lad if he remained steady to his engagement, and they broke from theirs. "'What, don't you know how to throw a man over?' said Bowes. "'Ask a woman to tell you.' And Miss Fotheringay showed how this feat was to be done simply enough. Nothing was more easy." Papa writes to Arthur to know what settlements he proposes to make in the event of a marriage, and asks what his means are. Arthur writes back and says what he's got, and you'll find it's as the Major says, I'll go bail. Then Papa writes and says it's not enough, and the match had best be at an end. And of course you'll enclose a parting line in which you say you will always regard him as a brother, said Mr. Bowes, eyeing her in his scornful way. Of course, and so I shall answered Miss Fotheringay. He's a most worthy young man, I'm sure. I'll thank ye hand me the salt. Then Philbert's is beautiful. And there will be no noses pulled, cost my boy? I'm sorry, you're balked, said Mr. Bowes. Dad, I suppose not, said Cos, rubbing his own. What'll ye do about them letters and verses and poems, Millie darling? Ye must send em back. Wigsby would give a hundred pound for em, Bowes said with a sneer. Deed, then he would said Captain Costigan, who was easily led. Papa, said Miss Millie, you wouldn't be for not sending the poor boy his letters back. Them letters and poems is mine. They were very long and full of all sorts of nonsense and Latin and things I couldn't understand the half of. Indeed, I've not read em all. But we'll send them back to him when the proper time comes. And going to a drawer, Miss Fotheringay took out from it a number of the County Chronicle and Chatteris Champion, in which Penn had written a copy of flaming verses celebrating her appearance in the character of Imogen, and putting by the leaf upon which the poem appeared. For, like ladies of her profession, she kept the favourable printed notices of her performances. She wrapped up Penn's letters, poems, passions, and fancies, and tied them with a piece of string neatly, as she would a parcel of sugar nor was she in the least moved while performing this act. What hours the boy had passed over those papers! What love and longing! What generous faith and manly devotion! What watchful nights and lonely fevers might they tell of! She tied them up like so much grocery, and sate down and made tea afterwards with a perfectly placid and contented heart, while Penn was yearning after her ten miles off, and hugging her image to his soul. End of chapter 12